All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Unraveling Political Theory, brought to you by The Last American Vagabond. I'm your host, Tim, and joining me, as always, is Keith Preston from Attack the System. Keith, how you doing? Good. Thanks for having me back. Great to have you back. So last week, we talked about cultural Marxism and its manifestations into what is often referred to as political correctness. So if you, if you have not checked that out yet, please do. I'm going to leave a link in the show notes. had a very interesting discussion about that. But today's topic is neoliberalism. I'm sure many have heard the term, but we're going to discuss that in depth today. So without uh, further ado, let's jump right into it. Uh, first question, Keith. What is neoliberalism? And, and where did it derive from? Specifically, how does it branch off from just liberalism by itself? Well, the history of liberalism really goes through three phases. Uh, classical liberalism begins in the 18th century, and it was the political and economic philosophy that came out of the Enlightenment. It's rooted in the ideas of, of John Locke and people like that in political theory, and the economic ideas of uh, Adam Smith and, and some of the early um, uh, economists that started to study economics as a serious uh, science, or at least as a, a social science during the, uh, during, during the 18th century. Uh, classical liberalism was the ideology that was behind the American Revolution, behind the French Revolution, and liberalism continued to spread primarily throughout Europe throughout the 19th century. The revolutions of 1848 were largely liberal revolutions against the old uh, ancient regimes, the traditional uh, monarchies and aristocracies. Uh, and eventually what happened is that, you know, in, at least in the developed world or what was then considered to be the developed world, liberalism became the dominant uh, philosophy, uh, dominant ideological paradigm in the 19th century. Now, what happened was that once uh, liberalism uh, became the establishment uh, and the Industrial Revolution was really starting to take place, you had a new ruling class that emerged. You didn't have the older royal and aristocratic dynasties anymore. You had the new capitalist class, or um, the, um, which, which, now this was a different kind of capitalism than what we have now. When we think about capitalism today, we think about corporate capitalism, mega corporations. Back in those days, it was the more classical uh, bourgeois model of capitalism, the Carnegie, uh, Henry Ford, um, uh, uh, Mellon type of capitalism, the old fashioned 19th century plutocrats. And um, in response to the rise of the Industrial Revolution, you also had the rise of socialism. And, and socialism was uh, about trying to uh, curb some of the economic conditions that were associated with the Industrial Revolution. On one hand, the Industrial Revolution was a time of monumental progress in terms of technological advancement and general rise, rises of living standards among the middle class, but it also had the side effect of creating this huge uh, industrial proletarian class. And, um, and this particular class, as, you know, as anybody that's read you know, Charles Dickens novels or anything like that knows, was uh, subject to a great deal of immiseration during this time. So you had uh, the radical labor movement that emerged in the 19th century and early 20th century in opposition to uh, industrial capitalism. And you know, it, it, it ranged from people with very reform-minded, you know, moderate reform-minded ideas all the way over to hardcore radicals that wanted to have a violent revolution against capitalism, you know, the Marxists and groups like that. Uh, so it was a, 
you know, an, an, the anti-capitalist movement was a you know, range from you know, people, moderate reformers to hard, hardcore revolutionaries. But the uh, uh, what happened though is that in the during the era of the Great Depression, you started to see a lot of changes in the Western world where the old uh, model of not just in the West, but in, in, in industrialized societies generally, you start to see a system where the old model of capitalism was starting to disappear, and a new kind of managerial capitalism emerged to replace it. Uh, the best book that I know of that talks about this is a fairly obscure book, but it's uh, it's a book called The Managerial Revolution by James Burnham. Uh, James Burnham was a former communist who eventually became a, a type of conservative. Uh, but he argued in the 1930s that what was happening in the world at that point was the traditional capitalist model that had come out of the Industrial Revolution, the bourgeois capitalism of the type that Marx criticized, that was falling apart and it was being replaced by this new kind of system that he called a managerial capitalism. And this is something where the social institutions generally, not just the economic institutions, but government and and universities and foundations and uh, churches and everything else were starting to uh, become dominated by these massive bureaucracies. Uh, one thing that he noticed as well is that this was happening in lots of different countries at the same time and in a way that cut across normal ideological boundaries or different systems of government. He, he looked at, keep in mind he's writing in the 1930s, so he looked at America, he looked at England and the Western European democratic countries. He also looked at Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and Soviet Russia, and noticed that this system, this kind of managerial bureaucracy, was emerging in all of these different kinds of states, irrespective of the kind of government or, or uh, uh, ideology, official state ideology they had. Um, so what comes out of this time period, out of the era of roughly the Great Depression and World War II is a new model of capitalism that's more of a collective capitalism, that's more of a state-managed capitalism, uh, with Keynesian, the Keynesian model of economics really being the dominant model of economics. Now, the classical liberalism uh, in terms of economic theory was relatively laissez-faire in the sense they thought, uh, you know, it's all just about keeping trade routes open and keeping markets open and things like that. Um, Keynesianism tended to advocate a system where the government would intervene in the economy to achieve particular economic ends, like keeping uh, unemployment rates from getting too high or uh, keeping uh, uh, or in, in working monetary policy in order to achieve certain economic results. So Keynesianism became the dominant economic paradigm in the, in the mid 20th century. Now, neoliberalism emerges, um, oh, well, another thing that needs to be added to that is liberalism itself goes through a phase where you, you move away from classical liberalism towards reform liberalism. And reform liberalism is sort of a watered down version of social democracy or progressivism. You know, it's the idea that government intervenes in the economy uh, to, ostensibly in the name of helping poor people or disadvantaged people. This is really the beginning of the welfare state and things like that. Um, you know, the older model of liberalism that was influenced by thinkers like John Locke tended to have this, uh, what we might call a negative uh, characterization of liberty. Negative rights this is what political scientists call negative rights. And that is, you know, the right of free speech, uh, freedom of religion, all that kind of stuff. Uh, whereas um, 
reform liberalism advocated more in the way of positive rights, like the right to things, the right to health care, the right to minimum wage, the right to Social Security and things like that. All right, in the late 20th century in the United States and other developed nations, um, this kind of reform liberalism was really the dominant um, paradigm and, and the Keynesian economic theory was the foundation behind it. I mean, this is still capitalism. This is still a, a ruling class oriented plutocratic system, but it's a reformed or version. It's a, uh, it's a moderated version of what existed before. It's also become less laissez-faire oriented and more, uh, more uh, state managed. Now, neoliberalism is a philosophy that started to develop in the late 20th century in opposition to Keynesianism. It was more about going back to the old pre-depression uh, pre model. It's, all, it's about uh, rolling back the welfare state, uh, flattening out tax rates, um, and opening international markets, uh, it, breaking down trade barriers between nations and things like that. So it's more of a return to the kind of liberalism that existed in the 18th century. And it also had the, it had the uh, effect of essentially serving ruling class interest in a lot of ways, because a lot of it had to do with rolling back gains that the working classes had made during the 20th century in terms of unionization and union rights and, and the social safety net and things like that. So that's really what neoliberalism is. It's sort of a, 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 re, a rejection of the Keynesian paradigm that came out of the mid 20th century and sort of a return to the older 19th century model of capitalism only in a modern context. Okay, yeah, when I when you were talking about how neoliberalism was kind of it was a global type of capitalism as kind of as you were saying it, that that not that domestic policy always wasn't the dominant economic system that the these neoliberal policies expanded past boundaries what now a couple questions here what to me neoliberalism is kind of the economic system of globalism so I wanted to first ask if that would be a fair statement and also expanding upon that going you know I know you touched on this already but what are the core neoliberal policies slash the kind of core ideological beliefs behind neoliberals and are these really free markets because I know they preach about being free markets but are these really free markets so maybe you could touch on all three of those there all right well yeah certainly neoliberalism is the economic ideology of globalism or globalization or whatever this that's obvious enough um, as far as what the core ideas behind neoliberalism are. Um, well, in the United States, let's look at the policies that the uh, the government has been pursuing in the economic realm since, say, the 1980s. Uh, it's about uh, eliminating progressive taxes and, and flattening out tax rates. It's about reducing regulation on key industries, not necessarily eliminating government inter intervention in the economy. That's, that's a separate issue. Um, we, we can get to that later. But uh, it's about deregulating uh, key industries. Uh, it's about uh, freeing up banking uh, interests to, to pretty much do what they want. It's also about eliminating trade barriers between nations. It's about expanding uh, trade throughout, you know, uh, so that trade relationships on an international level are more interconnected. Uh, it's also about managing the world economy on behalf of the most powerful economic interest in the developed world. And that's a, a really important consideration. 
what neoliberalism has often been about is opposing austerity programs on underdeveloped countries uh, for the purpose of uh, essentially trying to force them to open their markets and develop policies, economic policies that are conducive to the interest of Western capital or capital in the developed countries generally, uh, and not when, which is not necessarily in their interests. Uh, for example, um, they impose a lot of really uh, rigid austerity austerity policies on a lot of developing countries in, uh, in order to um, qualify for loans and things like that that they actually need for development. It's important to understand that neoliberalism has nothing to do with laissez-faire, like free markets, the way libertarians and, and people like that envision it, or, or you know, anarcho-capitalists or market anarchists. The um, neoliberalism is, a, is, a, is not only a state-managed system in individual nations, but it's an internationally managed system. Like all of these different uh, international uh, financial organizations, like the World Trade Organization, the the, uh, the whole apparatus that's associated with the G20, the International Monetary Fund, the, um, uh, the World Bank, uh, the, the managerial apparatus that's associated with, with NAFTA, and uh, until recently, this uh, TTP, which Trump has backed out of, but that was a variation of the same kind of ideas. Uh, the European Union, uh, all, all of these things are not laissez-faire institutions. These are not free market institutions. These are all uh, bureaucratic systems that are set up by states that represent a configuration of states for the purpose of managing the world economy on behalf of the dominant economic powers. Um, that's what neoliberalism is. So it has nothing to do with free enterprise or free trade the way it's commonly understood. Yeah, it's it's kind of like to me, it's uh, state state run capitalism that benefits the elite class. Pretty much what we've seen. Or, you know, the last you know the last few decades, the last two hundred years, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, you, I know you kind of touched on this already, but maybe we can do um, kind of a real world, couple real world examples of how third world countries are affected by neoliberalism. Maybe even some actual countries and what happened there, and how this also affects first world countries. And specifically, I wanted to get into how the IMF and World Bank play into this as well. All right, well, as far as examples of countries, um, I suppose the one of the ones that might be the most relevant for the listeners would be Mexico. Um, the We have these issues now in the United States where uh, there's a, a big controversy about mass immigration from Mexico into the United States. But it, it used to be that uh, Mexican immigration into the United States was far less common than what we have now. You know, we used to have basically open borders between the two countries. Uh, the reason that we started to see uh, a flux of uh, a large influx of immigrants from the uh, from Mexico and from Central America in the 80s and 90s had to do with American policies uh, towards those particular regions. Now, part of that had to do with the wars in, in Central America that were being um, carried out by the Reagan administration in the 1980s, which generated huge waves of refugees that were moving north. But we also have to look at the impact of NAFTA. NAFTA is neoliberalism in action. It was put together um, initially under the administration of George H.W. Bush and really finalized under Bill Clinton. But NAFTA had the effect of essentially destroying Mexican agriculture and creating huge um, um, 
unemployment rates among Mexican agricultural workers. And that's why you started to see so many uh, migrant workers and people like that from Mexico moving northward into towards the United States. Um, the that, that's just one example. Uh, that's Mexico is a good example because it's a re really relevant to American uh, domestic politics as well. Um, but we can look at uh, lots of different countries and see this kind of impact. Uh, we, we can look at uh, Bangladesh or somewhere like that, some of the South Asian nations where uh, that are still in much earlier stages of industrial and technological development. And what we can see is that uh, the trade agreements that are set up with uh, other parts of the world are such that these nations, more or less, these underdeveloped nations, uh, make the make, essentially make an agreement that they will open their markets to uh, trade and investment with developed countries, uh, and they will, in the process, uh, create policies that allow these corporations to take advantage of the environment. You know, they uh, pollute all they want to. Uh, they they will offer no protections to the rights of workers. You know, workers will work in horrific conditions, um, and they will also. Uh, carry out political repression if necessary. They will you know, prevent workers from organizing unions, organizing political parties uh, in order to further their own interests. Um, at the same time, they also will not share any of the revenue that comes with any of this wealth from with the local uh, people. Um, you know, what, here's one classic example. Now, this is from the past, but, but uh, I was actually discussing this with someone the other day, uh, so it's on my mind, so that's why I'm going to bring it up. Um, Iran. Well, uh, the United States has a, a lengthy and complicated uh, relationship with Iran historically, but for 26 years there was a dictator in Iran, the Shah, uh, and he was overthrown in 1979, and you know, that's really the, the source of the conflict between the U.S. and Iran today. But uh, during this time, the Shah was a, a dictator in Iran. Uh, political opposition was not allowed. This was in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Uh, political opposition was not allowed. Um, the Shah opened the uh, Iranian economy to essentially be dominated by American and British oil companies. Uh, the, the, the wealth that was used, uh, that was produced by this, was not used to help uh, the Iranian people. They had little in the way of actual infrastructure and things like that. Uh, you know, they were still a fairly uh, backward society domestically. I mean, the, the upper middle classes tended to do fairly well, but the poor certainly didn't. Uh, and any opposition to this was met with uh, repression by the uh, by the Sabak, which was the uh, the Shah secret police force. Um, and we see a similar arrangement in some of the Gulf states and the Middle Eastern countries. Um, Saudi Arabia is a good example. Uh, Saudi Arabia is ruled by a, a traditional royal dynasty that was put in power by the British after World War II. Basically, their role is to maintain. Uh, the role of the Saudi royal families to maintain uh, American and other Western control over the oil trade in that region. In return, they, they get uh, the royal family gets filthy rich and they get the military protection of the United States and, and from NATO. Uh, they they do not share any of this wealth with their their actual people. I mean, the, the Saudi Arabia is one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, they also use this Wahhabist uh, religion, this really fanatical extremist interpretation of Islam. That's actually the state religion in Saudi Arabia. It's a theocracy, um, just like a, a medieval or um, theocracy or the kind of theocracy you would have seen in the Bronze Age. Uh, the, the Saudis also uh, use this, uh, use their wealth to spread this philosophy throughout the Middle East by funding mosques that teach this. They, they, they even do this in Europe as well. 
And so we have this uh, situation in some of these Gulf states where you have these uh, really corrupt, tyrannical um, dictatorships that are uh, essentially puppets of Western oil interests. And you know, the wealth that's being produced by this oil is not being used to assist the people in these, in these countries. It's instead all being exported elsewhere. Uh, so th these are just a few examples. I mean, we could go around the world and look at a lot of different ways in which neoliberalism has this impact. Now, specifically, how does the because how is how is the IMF and the World Bank key institutions in opening up markets and particularly also in privatization of key assets of the economy and as well as uh, enforcing austerity measures at the same time? So how do how do those how does those how do those two institutions play into all this? Because I know they're key components in this all. Well, if poor nations want to develop themselves, they don't really have the resources to do that on their own. It takes an influx of investment capital and it takes loans. And that means they have to get those from banks in wealthy countries. And these organizations you just mentioned are essentially banking cartels that are controlled by wealthy countries. However, you know, if this is not an equitable relationship here. It's the lender who sets the term, not the borrower. Uh, it's the same way banking and lending work in, you know, in our own personal lives. Uh, you know, it's the it's the lender who sets the terms of the loan. Uh, and so the the uh, these international financial organizations, what they do is they po impose very rigid conditions for uh, lending uh, to countries that are trying to develop, and in a way that actually impedes their development, because it imposes such uh, rigid uh, terms on them that, and, and and it's structured in such a way that it's really intended to benefit the uh, powerful financial interest and and, and uh, economic interest in, in mega corporations in the developed world. Uh, for example, you know, it, it was like I was saying before, you know, the, con the conditions will be that uh, when it, these countries start to develop, they can't use the wealth that they produce to uh, assist their own people by building infrastructure or creating uh, uh, education programs or social safety net or things like that. Instead, it's all about uh, simply keeping the taxes low on, on the uh, on the investors who invest in that region. Um, you know, and the way, a way this will typically work is that you'll have a Western company that has manufacturing or mining or agricultural operations in some of these areas, and you'll have local elites that they're involved with, and the local elites will live like kings, you know, whether they're public sector or private sector. Uh, but then the people who actually do the work live like traditional third world peasants or, or you know, workers in very underdeveloped early industrial societies. Uh, you know, the human rights conditions are poor. There's no political freedom or limited political freedom. There's no social safety net. Uh, the people are lacking basic services and, and, and infrastructure. And then the, the, the uh, conditions of the loans that are used for these kinds of development programs are structured to keep it that way. You know, that's basically written into the, the conditions of the loans where it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's going to be used for the development interests of Western capital, not for the, the social development of the people in these particular nations. And finishing off on that question, now let's fl flip around now. How does this affect first world countries? Because it's, it, it, you would think, you know, we're, it's, it, it opens up the markets for first world countries to exploit third world countries, but it seems, you know, to me that 
that money is just funneling to the top and actually it's hurting our own domestic economies because it's because they're getting cheap labor overseas so how does this how is this affecting uh, first world countries um, well the United States is an excellent case in point of how it affects first world countries um, in the last century um, the working class made certain gains in the United States to where the working class could essentially have the standard of living of a middle class. Now that started to uh, recede in the last few decades as neoliberalism has been introduced. And what we now see is that the wealth gap between rich and poor in the United States is the widest it's been at, at any point since the 1920s, since right before the Great Depression. And there are a lot of different factors that have contributed to that, but neoliberalism is certainly one of those. Uh, you know, the reason Donald Trump won this last election was because he was running against the uh, impact that neoliberalism has had on the uh, Rust Belt states. That's why he, Trump won the election, because he picked up the Rust Belt states, which usually go to the Democrats. And he did that by talking about the impact of neoliberalism in some of those regions. These are uh, regions where the whole employment base was traditionally based in heavy industry. And because of neoliberalism, all of that has been exported to uh, underdeveloped countries where labor costs are much, much lower, places like India, Pakistan, Indonesia, uh, China, uh, Bangladesh, Latin American countries. And as a result, what's happened is that we've seen the dislocation of, uh, of wide sectors of the working class in the United States whose economic base for decades was uh, industrial manufacturing. You know, we're now moving away from uh, an industrial economy, manufacturing-based economy towards a service economy. Like if you think about all the people that you know personally, how many of them work in heavy industry or work in industrial manufacturing? Most people that you know personally probably work in uh, either some kind of administrative work, like in a bureaucracy of some type, some kind of service industry, like a uh, you know a restaurant or a retail outlet or a superstore or a bookstore chain or a coffee shop or something like that, or they may work in technology, they may work in IT and that kind of stuff. Right? So that's the reason why we're seeing this huge class disparity develop once again in the United States. We see that the traditional working class is being re-proletarianized. You know, people who used to work at uh, General Motors and, and uh, in, in manufacturing industries generally are now working in uh, Walmart and fast food restaurants and places like that. Uh, so that's that's the re-proletarianization of labor. At the same time, we've seen the growth of the bureaucratic sector. We've seen the growth of the technological sector. So it's also produced this newer upper middle class that's actually upwardly mobile. Uh, you know, the kind of high tech skill worker, high income skill workers you find in Silicon Valley and places like that. Uh, so all of this is this new kind of class system that we've seen developing in, in, um, in the United States. And, so that is the direct impact of neoliberalism, and that's how it impacts developed countries. The United States is further along in, in terms of uh, reproletarianization of labor than most other uh, Western industrial societies. It, this has certainly had uh, an impact on European countries as well, but the, the United States has uh, been hit the hardest by this, in large part because it's the American government and ruling class that's been the most aggressive about pursuing uh, neoliberal economic policies. Would, would you say that the left, so the left is 
predominantly against capitalism, I would say. There's been a lot of anti-capitalism, you know, campaigns. Would you say the left views capitalism the same way we're talking about neoliberalism now? Because I know that the right, you know, often is a champion of capitalism, although, you know, as we've talked about in the past, free markets and capitalism, if you look at, you know, the historical definition of capitalism, are really kind of different. So, and I'm trying to bridge this gap between the people on the left and the right, because I think people on the left actually, you know, they, they, I think that they would agree to a certain extent of free market, but capitalism as a, as a feudal system, kind of, they're opposed to. But would you say that the left sees capitalism pretty much as, neo, as the manifestation of neoliberalism? Is that a fair assessment? Uh, well, it's, it depends on what angle you're taking on this. If you look at different points on the political spectrum, they'll view this in different ways. Um, a mainstream Democratic Party-oriented progressive, or at least a, a, a liberal, a Democratic Party liberal, you know, somebody who would have been an, an enthusiastic Hillary Clinton supporter, may not necessarily be against capitalism. In fact, you know, the, the Clintons symbolized neoliberal economics. Um, neoliberalism is the prevailing economic philosophy of the, certainly the Democratic Party. I'll talk about the Republicans in a moment. But the Democratic Party really pioneered the development of neoliberalism uh, as a world system during the Bill Clinton era. And neoliberals of that kind generally are fine with this neoliberal economic system I just described. Now, the ones that are more left-leaning also believe in a larger welfare state. They'll say, well, you know, we can ameliorate that with a larger welfare state or something like that, which is why you see the, the, the mainstream Democratic Party liberals, you know, on one hand, championing neoliberal economics, on the other hand, advocating, you know, socialized health care or something of that nature. That's kind of the angle they take on this. Now, the Republicans advocate uh, what might be called neo hard neoliberalism. I mean, they're all about um, opening international markets to the interest of international business and also reducing the social safety dom uh, net domestically. Um, the, the right, the U.S. Republican Party is really about as far right-wing a party as you can be and still be within the paradigm of modern liberal democracy. Like further to the right of the Republicans would be the, the, the anti-liberal or anti-democratic right. It would be you know monarchists and proponents of the military dictatorship, fascists, Nazis, uh, believers in a uh, hereditary aristocracy or, or a, a an oligarchy that doesn't uh, rule with any pretense of, of democracy, but the, the Republicans aren't really that. They're, they're right-wing liberals, but they are, uh, they're about as far as to the right as you can get um, when it comes to economic policy. I mean, they, their, their model of economics is the same kind of economics you might find in some of the most reactionary backward Latin American countries like El Salvador. You know, they're the mirror image of El Salvador's arena party. Um, you know, and then on foreign policy, of course, they're also very militaristic as well. They're kind of like the Likud in, in, uh, in, in Israel. But uh, so that's really what we have in the United States with our two parties. We have two center-right parties, you know, one, uh, you know, that's about as far to the right as it gets within the liberal paradigm. And then maybe the Democrats that are slightly less to the right than that. Um, Trump, ironically, I think, is to the left of the normal Republicans. I think that he represents 
a faction of the ruling class that understands that neoliberal economics has had a destabilizing effect on American society domestically. I think they're genuinely concerned about the trade deficits between the U.S. and China, as well as uh, America's large international debts that are held by foreign banks. I think they're also concerned that the unemployment rates you see in certain parts of the U.S. will have a destabilizing effect on, on the, the society as a whole. Um, uh, and I, I think that, uh, that the Trump people, you know, are more nationalistic in the sense that, you know, they don't really want to rule over a society that's a, a essentially a third world society, you know, whereas the normal Republicans and Democrats don't care. Um, you know, it's not that the Trump Republicans are nice people or more benevolent or anything like that. I mean, they just see their own class interests in a different way. Um, now, as far as whether or not the, the left opposes capitalism, there's the far left opposes capitalism. I mean, you have you have socialists and, and communists and, and anarcho-communists and people like that who will tell you that they're opposed capitalism. They want to have a whole new model of economics. The majority of the left are social democrats, and that is they believe that, you know, in the capitalist system, but they just think it should be tinkered with, uh, you know, so we can have some single-payer health care, we can have free colleges, you know, that the Bernie Sanders model of socialism, you know, that's what most leftists are in the United States. Um, there are people further to the left than that, but that's not the norm. Um, so that's the, the general you know, paradigm that we see in American politics when it comes to the whole left-right capitalism, socialism thing. You know, the hard neoliberals, the Republicans, the economic nationalists, the Trumpians, the, the, the neoliberals, you know, the straight neoliberals, the Democrats, the social Democrats, the Bernie people, then on the far, far left, the actual anti-capitalists. One thing I would want to add, because a lot of the people listening to this are probably libertarians or um, anarcho-capitalists or voluntarists or in, in that milieu, um, none of this has anything to do with the kind of ideas about free market economics that uh, serious libertarians tend to hold to. Um, in fact, um, I think it's unfortunate that Murray Rothbard called his system anarcho-capitalism because historically, Capitalism has been identified with statism. I mean, to most traditional anarchists, uh, capitalism and statism are one and the same. You know, the, the capitalism is the, the ruling class's economic system. Uh, I think Rothbard probably would have had more traction if he had called his system um, individualist anarchism or market anarchism or laissez-faire anarchism or something like that rather than anarcho-capitalism. But when, this is important too, we need to clarify this. When when Republicans and American-style economic conservatives, and this includes some people who use the label libertarian, when they call themselves um, you know, proponents of free market economics, or when they say they're against big government, they're being very selective and often very disingenuous with that. Uh, if you ask you know, the groups like the Heritage Foundation, if you say, uh, or American Enterprise Institute, or the, the groups that are run by the Koch brothers, they will say, oh, if you ask them, are you against big government? Of course, they'll say, yes, we are. But when you look at what they define big government as being, it's, it's, a, it's a very selective definition. Basically, conservatives are opposed to the, the social safety net. They're opposed to uh, labor unions. They're opposed to forms of government regulation that they feel interfere with business prerogatives, at least the, the interests of the most powerful businesses. They're not against state intervention in the economy generally. In fact, there was a really interesting article 
on corporate welfare that was recently published in all places of Forbes magazine. I was somewhat surprised to see this in Forbes, but in Forbes magazine, there was recently an article about corporate welfare talking about all the money that has been spent on development, on economic development in the United States since the mid 1970s. All of it, every bit of it has gone to about a thousand corporations. You know, we've got about a thousand, fifteen hundred corporations in the United States that really dominate and control the U.S. economy. I mean, these are modern plantations. You know, this is the new feudalism. And a, a serious free market or, or a movement that wanted to eliminate government intervention in the economy would be focused on attacking the entire range of activities that government is involved in, most of which are intended to distribute wealth upward. Uh, we, you know, central banking, that's one thing that a lot of libertarians look at is, is central banking. I think they could, they could actually develop a lot more extensive critiques of that than they do. But banking policy is obviously one way. Corporate welfare is another way. Um, intellectual property law is another thing. Uh, a wide range of subsidies to uh, transportation and things of that nature. Uh, there's just so many different ways that government at every level, local, state, and federal, uh, intervenes in the economy in order to distribute wealth upward. We could look at zoning laws. We could look at building codes. We could look at business licensing. Uh, we could look at the way industries and occupations are regulated. All of those are set up in ways as to prevent competition from smaller competitors, to create monopolies for established interests. Uh, and this exists all throughout the economy. And most, most conservatives are clueless about this and not a few libertarians. And of course, the left, the left doesn't have any interest in these issues. The left is more, more state oriented. I mean, they want everything to either be about a, a bigger uh, socialist state, you know, or, or, or even if they're anarchists, they have this idea of, you know, they want to have these uh, democratic communes, but there are a lot of their ideas on, on the political economy is not very sophisticated, I mean, beyond just standard left-wing analysis. So that, you know, that's a somewhat, um, you know, different topic. I mean, you know, but uh, that's, that's the spectrum of opinion on this in a nutshell. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that point up. Um, I'll actually refer people, I'll leave a link in the show notes to a previous talk that we did uh, about free market anti-capitalism. And we go a little bit more in depth into the differences between free market and as you just talked about how capitalism was this remake of feudalism almost and how, you know, as you said, a lot of people say they're free market, but they don't understand all the caveats that are really hindering the free market, as you just named. So really important. And also, I wanted to touch one thing on the Trump part. I think because you were talking about how and I agree that it's not that they're the good guys or they're for team humanity. I think more, though, they realize that if they don't rebuild at least a little bit of the middle class, well, there's not going to be any money to pillage anymore. There's not a lot. There's not a lot of consumer spending or not a lot of money in the middle class. So how how can you pillage the middle class if there's nothing left? So I kind of speculate that maybe they even made a deal. Some people are speculating they made a deal. This is speculation, but you could see how this could happen. They made a deal with Goldman Sachs to help rebuild some of the economy so you know they can actually still profit because if they don't, well, they're, where, where are they going to get any more money? But well, that's moving a, on. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, that's a standard concern that some economists have. You know, the, in order to have um, pr production, you have to have consumption. If you have uh, a society where 
the level of poverty is so high that consumption dramatically reduces, uh, shrinks, then that actually undermines the the profit, uh, the ability of uh, of capitalist interest to generate profit. Like like Henry Ford, for example, is one of the early capitalists who understood this. You know, the the model of Fordism was I want I mean I mean Ford was not a Henry Ford was not a progressive minded person. I mean he was a plutocratic capitalist. He didn't believe in unions. He thought that you know the workplace should be rigid and disciplined. You know, like the army. But he also wanted his workers to make enough money that they could buy his products because he realized that in order to sell cars, he had to have consumers who could afford to buy cars. I think that one thing that's happened with neoliberalism is that a lot of uh, ruling class interests have forgotten that. They they forgot that in order to sell products, you have to have consumers who can afford to buy products, which means you have to have you know a, a middle class or a working class of some degree of stability. Uh, you know, one thing that made the uh, American economy of the post-war era so prosperous was you had this large middle class that was able to you know, get jobs in heavy industry and they could go out and buy a house, they could buy a car, buy a washing machine, buy a TV set. Uh, as the middle class has started to shrink, we started to see uh, middle class consumption start to shrink as well, or, or, or it's all paid for through debt. And I think that Trump seems to me to represent faction of the elite that understand this to some degree. I think that um, I think that the, the Trump people on both foreign policy and economics have what might be called more of a realist perspective uh, as opposed to a liberal perspective or neoconservative perspective. Like the, the Hillary Clinton people, the Democratic Party, they are neoliberals, as I said. They believe in the neoliberal economic system they're all they're fine with uh, you know having a, a, a welfare state and all of that socialized medicine and all that, but they be generally believe in neoliberal economics. You know they're and they're cultural liberals as well. I mean they're all for you know women's rights and gay rights and all that, but they take the they believe in neoliberalism, um, and they are largely indifferent to the impact that it has on the lower socioeconomic orders because they tend to be more from the cosmopolitan urban middle classes. You know, they, these are people who work in the government bureaucracies and in corporate bureaucracies and who are tech workers and, and, you know, and who go and have lunch at the coffee shop and, you know, and all of that kind of, you know, the latte liberals and all of that kind of stuff, that stereotype. Um, the, the neocons are, or extremists, uh, they they're more interested in foreign policy than anything else. But these people, their their philosophy is basically utopian. You know, they they believe in American exceptionalism to such a degree that they think the American system can be exported to places like Iraq or Afghanistan without any kind of problems. Um, the Trump people, I think, are a little bit more sober than these other categories of ruling class factions in the sense that they understand that to have. Um, if they, you know, if they want to rule over a United States that's a functional society, that's not a, a third world nation, they have to have some degree of um, effort made to reduce the wealth imbalance that's developed in recent times. They have to have a consumer consumer base to which to sell products. Um, I also think that in foreign policy, they look at it like uh, the neocons and, and the, um, the liberal internationalists have led the United States to foreign policy ruin, and they're trying to. Um, reverse that. I think they also look at it like it's. Uh, I think they're concerned about the fact that so many of the world's nations now have lined up against the United States, and I think they want to try to reverse that as well. 
Yeah, no, I, I would agree. It's it's like this race to the bottom of neoliberalism, globalism has backfired. And you know, you could even make the case that they're doing it to keep power because if you keep going this way, the pitchforks could come out, there could be, you know, it could lose control. So you gotta sometimes you gotta give a few cookies uh, to the people if if you're gonna keep stay in power because as they become more awake to what's going on and you got the age of the internet now and information travels around so fast, I think people are putting the pieces together a little bit more. And I really wonder, I don't wanna get too much into this, but I really wonder if they can continue this much further, you know, as information gets even more refined by people and we, and we, you know, we, we start to understand our history more as people can share information all over the world and, and more, not, not just people in one country, but people all over the world understand this global system going on. And I think that's why you're seeing this backlash to it now, but we can talk about that more another time. But I wanted to touch on this point. Do you think ne neoliberalism could work without the help of neo of the neocons? Because without the muscle backing backing these pol economic policies, what country would open up their market to predatory capitalism without some type of threat of military intervention? And when we look back at all the neoliberal policies, they seem to be preceded or or you know by military intervention or if they didn't if they didn't go through with these policies they eventually they were militarily intervened and then they eventually opened up their markets so do, to me they're the same thing of they're the same one and the same of globalization in general but where where neoliberalism the economic and then you have the more government foreign policy wing of neoconservatism so would you say they're even possible without each other uh, well, neoliberalism would be possible without the aggressive militarism of the neocons in the sense that you could still use uh, economic power as a means of advancing neoliberalism. You know, as I said, these countries around the world that are very underdeveloped and want to develop, they have to have investment capital for the sake of development. They have to get it somewhere. That means they're going to be getting it from Western banks and from the developed countries. So, you know, the lender still sets the terms of the, of the uh, loan, so it's still possible to use economic coercion of that type. However, uh, certainly the neocons foreign policy ob objective provides some muscle to this, as you were saying. Um, it, when we look at the foreign policy differences between the neocons and the, and the, and the standard neoliberals, the, the neocons are, I suppose you could say, are a particularly aggressive branch of neoliberals in the sense that they don't really care about going through uh, international institutions like the UN and things like that, or collaborating with allies like NATO. They just believe that uh, American military power should just roll in full steam ahead uh, and, and practice raw imperialism. I mean, they're you know they're kind of like the Romans or like the you know, like Napoleon or someone like that. Um, the that's, that's the neocons. Now, the other dominant uh, foreign policy outlook among the American elite is liberal internationalism. And this is what the uh, more moderate Republicans and the, uh, and the Democratic Party are. They believe pretty much in the same objectives as the neocons, but they think that you should be a little bit more you know, subtle about it. You should uh, at least pre uh, create the pretense that you're collaborating with allies, that you're working through international institutions, that you're trying to use diplomacy um, they, whenever they take a military action, they like to make it look like it's an international coalition. 
uh, but they really have the same objectives. For example, uh, under uh, President George W. Bush, you know, we saw the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq where the U.S. just went in full steam ahead and invaded these countries. Uh, under the uh, regime of President Obama, we pretty much saw the same thing in Libya and in Syria, but they were trying to do it under a different cover. In, in, in Libya, it was a war, it was an invasion, but they were trying to do it through the UN and claiming that this was a human war for human rights and things of that nature. Uh, same thing in Syria, they were trying to claim that you know they were defending Syria uh, human rights against the Assad regime. Uh, you know, in reality, what they were doing was, was sending funds to rebels that were aligned with Al Qaeda and ISIS and groups like that. And they, and the, but this purpose between all of these actions was the same. The purpose of getting rid of uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq or getting rid of Gaddafi uh, in Libya or trying to get rid of uh, Assad in in Syria, all of this is about eliminating states in that region that refused to be incorporated into the. Washington Consensus, what's called the Washington Consensus, which is really just a, you know, means American imperialism. All of these nations around the world that have refused to be incorporated into that system have been under the attack of the United States in some particular way. You know, the most obvious examples are Libya, um, uh, Iraq, Syria, you know, Iran, and they're still gunning for Iran, uh, Afghanistan, obviously. Uh, these are the nations that defy the, the, uh, the empire. And that's why that's the real reason why they have this uh, aggression against them. Yeah, no, really good point to make. It's like the it's imperial imperialism, but you either have the neocon way, which is pretty much overt, and then you have the neoliberal way, which is covert and done with a social justice front. Yeah. Um, well, well, I guess the neocons kind of they they, so they try to play the social justice front, but pretty much it's pretty overt. All right, so last question here before we end. How do we solve neoliberalism? Do you think we should go the revolution route, the gradual route? And piggybacking on that question, how do we balance having free markets but also avoiding exploitation from foreigners who suck out capital from our nation or our city and that and that and that hurts our own development from within. So how do we balance those two and how do we solve this globalism, neoliberalism system that we have now? Well, I think that one thing that's positive is that the world seems to be moving in a more um, multipolar rather than unipolar direction. Uh, ever since the end of the Cold War, the dominant uh, international power has been what I call the Anglo-American Zionist or Hobbist Axis, and that's basically the alliance between the United States, England, the NATO countries generally, the, uh, the Gulf states, Israel, and then some other players. That's been the dominant international coalition. Now, that's been uh, challenged in recent years by uh, what I call the triangular resistance, and that's the rise of the BRICS nations. The whole uh, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa axis. Uh, that's one part of the triangle. The other is the Shia bloc, the Iran and Hezbollah led Shia bloc in the Middle East, as opposed to the Sunni bloc that's led by the Saudis. And also the uh, resistance that's emerged in Latin America, where the Latin American nations have moved more and more uh, from under the boot of the United States. For example, there are no longer any American military bases in Latin America, with the exception of Guantanamo, uh, which was certainly not the case in the past. Um, so we're starting to see the world moving in a more multipolar direction, which I think is good. Um, also, though, that, that's obviously just a part of the, the first step. Um, 
we're also starting to see um, more and more challenges to uh, the, the, the dominance of neoliberalism on the ground level. You know, we're starting to see uh, populist movements and grassroots movements developed in, in different countries to challenge the impact that neoliberalism has had on their particular societies. Uh, and there's a lot of different vari variations of that, but uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the, this is a worldwide struggle. Um, you know, as far as in a country like the United States, what I would recommend is we need to really first try to understand the ways in which this plutocratic system is created. And, you know, the, 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 uh, the podcast you mentioned that you and I did once before where we talked about that a bit. I mean, really understanding how all that works is the key to dismantling it. We need to understand how government at every level of society and every level of the economy creates policies that are designed to create this artificially privileged ruling class. Um, you know, it's not enough to simply go with Bernie, go Bernie Sanders and say, well, we need free schools and free health care and all that. It's not enough to uh, go Donald Trump and say, well, we need higher tariff walls or whatever. That's Those are just Band-Aid solutions, if they're even solutions at all. We really have to get to the heart of what the system is. And the system is, a, is where the state regulate society in such a way as to protect the plutocracy, the artificially privileged capitalist elites. And understanding how that works and attacking all the different kinds of policies all across the spectrum that create that kind of situation is, is the way you go about dismantling this. Now, if all that was effectively dismantled, and of course, you know, that's a, that's a very far-reaching, uh, long-range project, but even if all of these things were um, effectively attacked, I think what you would have then is you would have a system where production was done on a more localized basis for more localized use. I don't think, and I, now I'm not talking about some kind of, you know, uh, pre-modern uh, village utopia necessarily where we're going to go back to making everything we need ourselves. And I'm not talking about doing away with industrial civilization or technological civilization, I, I, I like romantic medievalism or something like that. I'm talking about something where the, uh, once the, centralized control over wealth and resources is eliminated, then you'll start to see dispersed control over wealth and resources, which will in turn make more localized system of production for local markets more viable. So the kind of centralization of wealth that we see under state capitalism will have largely been eliminated and neoliberalism and these, you know, these free trade uh, arrangements, so to speak, will become circle for them superfluous. I mean, they won't, uh, they really won't be relevant anymore. Uh, there'll still be trade. I mean, yeah, there can still be international trade. You can still get online and, you know, uh, sell something to somebody in some other country or something like that. Uh, but this, but it wouldn't be this kind of uh, plutocratic international system of managed trade in the way that uh, neoliberalism actually works. Yeah, I, I've, in a past podcast, made the point now I'm I'm an anarchist in philosophy, but I don't. First off, I don't know if we're ready for that. I don't know, and I I, want, I I at least think that if we could return somewhat to states' rights, the state that way, we wouldn't have this unipolar where the federal government dictates everything over the whole country, or you know now it's moving in the international institutions, the UN or the count, you know, they're ruling the whole, you know, they're setting policies that are implemented everywhere. If we could just move back to you know states you know at least it's a first step or we have all these different you know centers of power we don't have one center of power and so then we have some checks and balances 
And so I think moving to, you know, where we have a lot more centers of power, we're still, I, I don't think we're ready for a full on, you know, anarchism in a way, but I think states, state rights, you know, kind of how Jefferson had envisioned it would be a, a positive first, uh, you know, first step into slowly decentralizing power. It's, you know, this neoliberalism is just centralizing power more and more into global hands. So that would be my take. Do you have any uh, last words, Keith, before we finish up here? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, that's a step in the right direction. Although I would add to that, that there's a lot of uh, corporate welfare at the state level, you know, public partner, uh, private partnerships, they call that. And whenever you hear politicians talk about public private partnerships, they're talking about corporate welfare, essentially, or they're talking about some sort of uh, system of corporate privilege that's imposed at the regional level. You know, there's a lot of that at the local level in cities and counties. Uh, we, we, again, you know, people, a lot of people don't realize how extensive all this is. Uh, but yeah, anything that has the effect of decentralizing political and economic power, I really think that's the, the way to go. Um, you know, it's uh, not only at the international level by having a more uh, multipolar world order, uh, not only through having revolutions against uh, neoliberal regimes, um, in, in certainly in the underdeveloped parts of the world and developing oppositional movements for the purpose of dismantling some of these structures in the developed world. I think all of those are steps in the right direction. Yeah, I guess for, uh, and I realize that all forms of power are going to have their limitations and, and issues that we're going to have to resolve. I guess my point has always been, at least at the state level, you, you, you don't need to get every other state behind your movement. You right. only need the people in your state. And so it becomes a little bit more manageable to go in and change things that you don't like, as opposed to the federal level where you have to get all these other states. Whereas, you know, in, in your state, you could drive to a lot of places. You don't, you, you could follow what's going on a little bit easier, I think, than trying to track all the different Mm -hmm. amount of agencies in the federal government and overlapping agencies between state, federal, and county. And it's just such a quagmire that you it's hard to even wrap your mind around what's going on. Whereas if you just have more power centered in the states, I think you could at least follow what's going on more and and, and, and affect it a little bit easier. You wouldn't have to you know have such a vast complex system to worry about. So that, I guess that's always been my Oh, yeah, sure. my stance. Yeah, and I'm all for Cal Exit and I'm all for Texit and all of these other kind of regional secession movements that have developed in recent times as well. Yeah, all that's really interesting. But yeah, I'm for just about anything that has the effect of dispersing political and economic power. And certainly, devolution of that type is a step in the right direction. Yeah, I would agree. Well, Keith, really enjoyed it. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, we'll, we'll get another topic for next week. But, um, Again, people, if you if if you enjoyed the video, give it a like, share it around. Uh, we need to keep discussing these political theories, as as Keith talked about. It, we have to first become aware of how these systems have been built. If we don't understand them, we're only going to put band-aids on them. We're only going to halfway solve the problem. We got to really wrap our minds around and study how they developed. You know, the history, who's behind it, how the manifestations. Uh, we, how we can see them in society, and then we can start to make steps in the right direction. So I hope people will continue to study political theory and study these different systems so we can, you know, start to find the bonds in which we all share because we all have the same, you know, a lot of times we have the same enemy and we have the same problems, 
we're just often tricked into blaming this thing or, or that thing as but those are just band-aid solutions so again Keith thank you for coming on and we will see you guys next week check out the last American for uh, more content <laughs>